all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 7 of Professionally Embarrassing. We have had some very exciting developments since our last episode and have actually been featured in both Council Magazine in a really cool double page glossy feature. And we've also been given a shout out in The Times. So we're pretty overwhelmed by all that coverage. Thank you, everyone, for bothering to listen to us. We really hope that we can continue to deliver the kind of things that you will enjoy. So on that note, over to Malvika for this week's What Did You See on Bailey? Just a quick note from me that I'm currently recording in Chambers where there is some building work nearby. So apologies for any background noise from me. Malvika? The case I'm looking at this week is the judgment of His Honour Judge Kloss in HW and WW, which is a money case, because I realised that we actually haven't done a money case on this podcast so far, um, which is completely our fault. We're very sorry, listeners, and we'll try and keep an eye on that so you get some more interesting money content. For anyone who's not a family lawyer, um, money is what we refer to as matrimonial finance cases, uh, as opposed to children cases, which is what we've mainly been dealing with over the last six episodes. So this judgment was handed down on the 26th of March 2021, so a couple of months ago now. And the reason I picked it is because it's a really interesting topical one about whether or not the COVID-19 pandemic is a BADA event, which is what we refer to as an event that is unexpected and has happened since the making of a financial order, which invalidates the entire basis of that order. So the facts of this case were that the parties were married for 24 years, so a long marriage, and they separated in 2018. Wife was 49 and husband was 53, and they had three children. Two of them were adults and one was 12. Amongst the party's assets were the former matrimonial home, in which wife is still living with one of the children, another property and a company of which husband was the managing director, is the managing director, has 51% of the shares and wife had 49% of the shares. So in the round, there were around £529,000 in non-business capital assets, debts of around £200,000, pensions of around £557,000, and the company was valued at £3,157,000. On the 12th of March last year, the parties reached a settlement. And the reason I'm being so specific about the date is because it does turn out to be relevant later on. The parties effectively agreed that husband would keep the business and wife would transfer her shares in the company on the basis that husband pays her three lump sums totaling a million pounds. Wife would also keep the family home 
and the proceeds of sale from the second property and husband would transfer her some land. He would continue to pay child maintenance and school fees as well as spousal maintenance until the payment of the third lump sum. And there would be a clean break by April 2022. So wife effectively got 39.8% of the capital assets and 32.8% of the pensions, which for any family lawyers listening may seem low considering the equal sharing principle, i.e. the starting point in a long marriage is 50-50. However, that was set off against the fact that the assets that wife was getting as part of the agreement uh, were referred to as copper-bottomed, which is more secure or trustworthy assets, whereas husband's assets were more risk-laden and he effectively had no liquid assets. His Honour Judge Kloss felt that was a fair agreement that was reached. Both parties had been represented by solicitors and by counsel at that hearing and had avoided going to a contested final hearing. So that was the 12th of March 2020. The UK then entered lockdown on the 23rd of March 2020. On the 23rd of April 2020, husband solicitors said he couldn't pay the first lump sum which he was due to pay on the 10th of June because the pandemic had decimated the company's turnover. He sought a 12-month delay in payment and made an application for a stay Wife made an application for enforcement of the order of 12th of March 2020, and husband eventually made an application to set aside that order in November. So what's the legal framework here? The court referred to the speech of Lord Brandon in Bada and Bada, which is a case from the 80s that sets out four conditions that I will go through. Bada was an extremely tragic case. Mrs. Bada's suicide and murder of the party's children led to the court setting aside an order that had been made very shortly prior, which transferred the family home to her. That order was, of course, made on the basis that she would look after the children in the home. But that order was eventually set aside on the basis of what had happened since. So the four conditions set out in the judgment are as follows. I'll read them out verbatim. The first condition is that new events have occurred since the making of the order which invalidate the basis or fundamental assumption upon which the order was made so that if leave to appeal out of time were to be given the appeal would be certain or very likely to succeed. The second condition is that the new events should have occurred within a relatively short time of the order having been made. While the length of time cannot be laid down precisely, I should regard it as extremely unlikely that it could be as much as a year and that in most cases it will be no more than a few months. The third condition is that the application for leave to appeal out of time should be made reasonably promptly in the circumstances of the case And the fourth condition is that the grant of leave to appeal out of time should not prejudice third parties who have acquired in good faith and for valuable consideration interest in property which is the subject matter of the relevant order. His Honour Judge Kloss also referred to the comments of Mrs Justice Hale, as she then was, in Cornick and Cornick, where she set out three possible scenarios. The first scenario wouldn't qualify for BADA relief, and the second and third may do if all the conditions in BADA were met. So the first scenario is an asset which was taken into account and correctly valued at the date of the hearing changes value within a relatively short time because of the natural processes of price fluctuation. The court should not then manipulate the power to grant leave to appeal out of time to provide a disguised power of variation, which Parliament has quite obviously and deliberately declined to enact. So taking into account 
fluctuations of an asset which are in the normal processes of price fluctuation are not good enough to access BARDA relief. The other two scenarios are a wrong value was put on the asset at the hearing, which hadn't been known at the time and would have led to a different order, provided it's not the fault of the person alleging the mistake, it's open to the court to give leave for the matter to be reopened. Although falling within the BARDA principle, it's more akin to misrepresentation or non-disclosure cases than BARDA. And then the third scenario is something unforeseen and unforeseeable had happened since the date of the hearing, which has altered the value of the assets so dramatically as to bring about a substantial change in the balance of assets brought about by the order. So the husband in this case said this case falls within that third category of unforeseen and unforeseeable events. So what did the judge think in this case? Husband submitted that although the pandemic was known about on the 12th of March 2020, it wasn't foreseen or foreseeable that it would develop the way that it did or have the financial impact that it had. Husband said there was a 38% fall in turnover and a net loss of around £205,000 in the year ending 31st of August 2020. The company accountants also estimated that the value of the company had fallen from 3.5 million to 1,265,000. Wife, on the other hand, tried to argue that the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic financially was part of the natural processes of price fluctuation, effectively the first Cornick scenario that I talked about. The judge didn't accept that. What he said is the COVID-19 pandemic is an extraordinary event different in nature and scale to any similar world event in the lifetime of the parties. This is not an issue of market volatility, which is periodically experienced. Neither is it a national issue with predictable localized causes. It is akin to a war with tentacles spreading across the world. I therefore find that in principle, the COVID-19 pandemic can open the door to a successful BADA claim. So it can, but did it in this case. The judge found that the application was made promptly in all the circumstances, so the issues weren't around the second or third BARDA conditions. The issue here was around foreseeability. As at 12th of March 2020, could the husband reasonably have foreseen a risk that the COVID-19 pandemic might have a significant impact upon the trading position of his company? The judge concludes, and he does say not without some hesitation, that the risk to the company was reasonably foreseeable on the 12th of March when the settlement was reached. He sets out a timeline of COVID-related events in the weeks leading up to that hearing, and he notes that the husband was on notice of developing world events. He knew that the virus was spreading, that lockdowns were happening, or there was a the threat of lockdowns, and that the business world was reacting, the stock markets were reacting. Husband is also an experienced businessman who runs an international business, which is at risk of exchange rate fluctuations. And I should also say the company sells printers and copiers from what I can understand. So husband should have appreciated the clear potential for a reduction in business flowing out of a potential lockdown and an impact on sales, obviously, if everyone was no longer in the office and working from home. So the judge says, well, if the event was foreseeable, the case doesn't fall within the third scenario in Cornick and the application would fail. The judge then considers whether even if he's wrong in reaching that conclusion, should he exercise his discretion to reopen the proceedings considering the impact on the company financially? But he concludes that the impact is not fundamental enough 
to meet the Bada test. Contrary to what the judge calls the husband's doomsday predictions, the company is actually projected to bounce back quite significantly. And husband never said during the course of these proceedings that he's giving up on the company. And his case has always been that the company remains viable. It's effectively going through a rough patch. The company holds premises at a value of 1.5 million, which is free of mortgage, and there are other options available to husband. The judge also makes the following remarks at paragraphs 94 and 95, which I set out in full rather than summarize because I think they're helpful. The husband chose for himself the path of greatest personal risk, which was projected to lead to the greatest personal reward. The husband himself refers to the deal leaving him under pressure. His reasons were both principled and economic and entirely understandable. As a matter of principle, this was his business, which he had built and wanted to retain. As to pounds, shillings and pence, he wanted to benefit from the huge income and capital growth that was anticipated. The husband told me in evidence that his plan was to retire at or around age 60 and to continue to receive dividends from the asset. Whether in retirement he decided to sell up and realize capital or retain his shares and milk the business for income would be his choice. It's axiomatic that if a party chooses pressure and risk, it's a very steep hill to climb to avoid the downside of that risk. The judge also says the barter threshold is deliberately set very high. There are sound public policy reasons why the finality of litigation is to be preserved, save in the most exceptional of circumstances. The fact that there hasn't yet been a tsunami of COVID-19 pandemic barter applications before the courts appears to suggest that exceptionality is still holding good, even in these difficult times, although I accept that cases may be in the pipeline and or remedies pursued. If the business had involved, for example, the supply of PPE, thermometers, home office equipment, and had increased in profitability and value, the wife could not have sought an increase in her reward. The gamble was taken by both parties. And if I acceded to the husband's application, the case would of necessity start afresh. Mr. Green has confirmed that the cost of a reassessment of the company would be 12 to 15,000 pounds, but that is the tip of the costs iceberg. For this application alone, the parties have between them incurred legal fees of 113,032 pounds. The need to put a stop to the hemorrhaging of much needed funds upon the payment to lawyers provides a powerful motivation against the application and a key reason why finality of litigation is so prized. So the helpful summary at paragraph 95 is, the COVID pandemic and its impact on a key asset is a potential barter event, which opens the door to set aside. The timing in this case of the pandemic and the husband's application leave that door open. However, the risk of the event was reasonably foreseeable to him. And in any event, an overall assessment of the impact of the pandemic and more general factors leads the court to exercise its discretion against the husband. I would say the judge does make some comments at the end of the judgment about the way forward. What do we do now? Although the order hasn't been set aside, I think everyone accepts that husband has had a significant impact on his trade. So the judge says, well, we need a bespoke solution to this situation because husband has no personal assets of substance and the only apparent enforcement option which wife would have and which the court would have is the nuclear option of attacking the continuation of the company. He's effectively saying, look, I haven't set the order aside, but let's be sensible about how the order is to be enforced. 
So it's likely that moving forward, it's not going to be the case that there's going to be a unnuanced enforcement of the order of the 12th of March. The order hasn't been set aside, but the parties are clearly being encouraged to be pragmatic about how husband meets his obligations under that order. It's not an altogether surprising judgment, and I do have sympathy for the husband in this case. Hindsight is, of course, 2020, but when I think back about whether collectively we really appreciated the potential impact of COVID on the 12th of March 2020, I don't think we did. I was still attending court very shortly before the announcement of lockdown, and I remembered that none of us thought the lockdown would be as enduring as it was I remember we were making applications to adjourn remote hearings en masse because we thought in-person hearings would resume quite shortly. So I do have a huge amount of sympathy for the husband, but as the judge says, sympathy and fairness don't form part of the test to be applied. And we know from similar applications that were made post-2008 financial crisis that a barter-type application is notoriously difficult to get home. And rightly so, there are very obvious public policy reasons, like the judge says, that only in the narrowest of circumstances should financial orders be set aside. It is imperative that the parties have finality and peace of mind. Financial remedies proceedings that have proceeded all the way to FDR, as they have in this case, they're not pleasant. It's an exhausting process, and no one wants to unravel all that work and start from scratch with all the associated costs. So I think that on balance, this was the right decision in this particular case. Any thoughts, Maddie? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, it does sort of go back to the fundamentals of you take the risk with the reward, don't you? If you take an asset in the divorce, like the judge said, that you think is going to be more valuable, if it falls in value, you have to accept that risk in the same way that you would accept the reward if it gained value. And I think it's just basic principles of, you know, if you choose the riskier assets in a separation and those assets go on to underperform, then your risk has not paid off. And if they go on to overperform, then your risk has paid off. And I think that would have been something I'm sure that the husband was very aware of when he made that settlement in March. And I agree with you to an extent, you know, how much did we appreciate the impact of this pandemic? How much did we really think that our lives would change? I don't think that really was ever foreseeable, especially not apparently by the government on the 12th of March 2020. But it's right to say that there was certainly enough information at that time to, as a business owner, take stock. And obviously, the timing is just very unfortunate. You know, if they'd separated a year before, things would have been different. And if they'd separated two years later, things would have been very different. The asset pool would have been smaller because it's a shared loss. So yeah, unfortunate timing, but I think probably has to be the right decision. Um, And again, demonstrates the high tests involved. And I'm sure that The husband really was hoping that this would work, um, but probably accepts that there's not a lot that anyone can do about it now. It's signed and sealed, as it were. What case do you have for me, Maddie? So I was going to do a finance case, I promise, but I got distracted by a FII case, which I don't think we've done on this podcast before and which I think are incredibly interesting and also very sad. So FII, for those who don't know, stands for Fabricated or Induced Illness, and it is perhaps better known by the old name, which is Munchausen syndrome or Munchausen's by proxy syndrome, which many of you may recognise as being the name of a mental health disorder whereby someone fakes, exaggerates or induces symptoms of medical diseases when they don't have those medical diseases and sometimes don't even have the symptoms. And just for the purposes of this judgment, which I'm completely taking from the first paragraph of Mr Justice Peel's judgment, the uh, following medical acronyms apply. So FII is fabricated or induced illness, which is 
a parent falsifies symptoms of illness in a child or deliberately induces symptoms of illness in a child. SSD, which is somatic symptom disorder, where an individual genuinely experiences symptoms of illness, which have no organic or medical cause, but are brought on psychosomatically by mental health illness. And FD, which is fictitious disorder, where an individual deliberately fabricates or exaggerates their own symptoms of illness. And so this is a case involving a child called X, who at the time of judgment was under two years old, but since birth has been separated from her mother. And it's obviously very regrettable that it took nearly two years for this case to come to a resolution. The issues are essentially that in 2013, the same mother had four children removed from her after a 12 day hearing, which included three and a half days of oral evidence from the mother herself, which contains a series of damning findings in relation to the older children um, who at the time were young in 2013. And the core of those findings from 2013 are as follows. I'm going to read them out because they're important to remember going forward with the plot of this case. So in 2013, the judge found that the local authority's evidence was accepted without hesitation. He found that the mother's evidence to be far-fetched, disingenuous, lacking any insight or a downright lie. And as the evidence unfolded, the mother became increasingly unbelievable. At paragraph 128, he describes her as essentially dishonest. The mother had been guilty of FII by interfering with the medical care of D, who is the youngest of the four older children who were removed. And that included interfering with the oxygen supply. He was in hospital for a number of months after his birth, for about nine months. And the court found that, in fact, the reason he was in hospital for such a long time is because the mother had been inducing certain symptoms in the baby. So she'd interfered with his oxygen supply. Excessive suctioning to clear the airways, which the judge described as bordering on the cruel, willfully reporting wrong saturation levels, interfering with hospital charts, obstructing staff and being rude, challenging and occasionally manipulative towards them all, as well as making false allegations against medical professionals about their conduct, giving exaggerated, misleading or contradictory accounts to medical professionals, causing D to be subjected to unnecessary investigations, failing to follow medical advice. And as a result of his prolonged time in hospital, the mother has caused D to suffer developmental delay. His feeding was not handled properly. On regular occasions, mother was indifferent towards him and failed to react to his cues. And the father at that stage was unwarrantably disengaged, resulting in virtual invisibility. So I don't think I've seen a set of findings quite that damning in, in some time. And that is the backdrop by which the case came to court in the case of X. So the mother's new baby who's born some six years after those findings are made. The mother is now 37 years old. She has a number of quite complex health needs herself, including that she has been very profoundly deaf since she was born as a result of something called Pendred syndrome, which is in a genetic disorder leading to thyroid disorder and sensorineural hearing loss. She was diagnosed about 2000 and her thyroid has been surgically removed, requiring her to take medication every day. She has asthma for which she uses an inhaler. She has gestational diabetes, urinary incontinence and recurring anxiety, depression, impulsive and aggressive behaviours, suicidal ideation and actions consistent with emotionally unstable personality disorder. So the mother herself is no stranger to medical professionals. And an interesting facet of this case is that between the years 2007 and January 2021, in the course of the fact finding, the mother was under the impression or genuinely believed that she suffered from something called Addison's syndrome, which is basically adrenal insufficiency. It means that you don't produce the right hormones that regulate the health of your body. And that came about in about 2007, she presents at hospital with lightheadedness, headaches, nausea and vomiting. 
In 2011, she's admitted to hospital again with vomiting and dizziness. Testing established an issue around cortisol levels, which is the hormone produced by the body. And the test suspected adrenal insufficiency. According to the mother, she was then diagnosed with Addison's disease and believed that she was formally diagnosed with Addison's. She cannot recall exactly who told her so, although she was being treated at the time by certain doctors. As a result, she was prescribed with the medication that she required. She was told to look out for signs of Addison's crisis, including lightheadedness, dizziness, fatigue, reduced consciousness, headaches, and nausea. I'm going to call those going forward the Addisonian symptoms, by the way, because that's what the judge calls them, and that's an easy way to group them. So she's been told to look out for these signs of Addisonian symptoms. Bear in mind that at no point during this time did she actually have Addison's. It was an incorrect diagnosis in 2007, and testing established in this fact finding that the mother had never had it. So we enter the period of after the older children. A to D, have been removed from the mother in 2013 following the findings, there is a significant chronology, which is the findings made in 2013 are followed by a continuous pattern of, of what's called maladaptive behaviour. So the mother's not coping very well with the, with the removal, understandably, for reasons that we talked about before. And throughout this period, she presented in A&E on repeated emergency call-outs on at least 27 such occasions 13 times with vomiting, nausea and headaches, and 14 times with unconsciousness or reduced consciousness. There was a continuation of some 22 such Addisonian presentations which had taken place between 2009 and 2014. So since 2009, there's some 53 appearances at hospital presenting with what she thinks is Addisonian symptoms, nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, lack of consciousness. The mother's full medical records were not before the court until right before the beginning of the fact finding. So a number of experts had prepared reports without the full hospital records, without the full GP records, because this was a mother who was presenting to medical professionals so much. It took a lot of work to get all of her medical records together from various different professionals. At one point, she went to two hospitals in the same day. So different medical professionals across a wide range of um, medical services were approached by this mother over a very long period of time. And the court is specifically looking at since 2013, to 2019 when X is born, what's the background? And the court finds after having finally received all of the medical papers and all of the GP records and the hospital admissions, bear in mind that this is a mother who's presented 14 times with unconsciousness or reduced consciousness. In respect to the unconsciousness or unresponsiveness, the records paint a picture of clinical doubt about whether the presentation was genuine. To pick out a handful of examples, which are echoed many times elsewhere, and this is from the judgment at paragraph 31, on the 18th of September 2015, the notes recorded a bizarre presentation with hyperventilation on being woken up, neurologically keeping eyes shut most of the day. On the 13th of May 2018, the notes record medical staff report that while she appeared unresponsive, when observed, there were times when the mother thought she was alone, that she appeared alert. On the 16th of June 2018, the notes record second attendance with reduced GCS, which is a test level and no identifiable physical cause medical staff documented that the mother was observed opening eyes spontaneously when staff stood quietly in the room and queried whether mother was intentionally presenting as though her conscious level was reduced on february the 15th 2019 the last such entry in this period and typical of the various episodes which had occurred previously mother called the emergency services saying she was having an addison's crisis on arrival at hospital, she was noted to be patient well known with multiple similar presentations of unconsciousness, and the history suggested no previous organic cause always resolved without treatment. The note states, unconsciousness felt to be non-organic in nature and possibly due to personality disorder slash behavioural. No evidence of Addisonian crisis, unconscious neurology inconsistent and variable, likely behavioural rather than organic. 
So throughout the period that mother is presenting at hospital, the medical professionals are doubting the presentation. They're saying that she is appearing unresponsive, but also quite responsive. And it's possible that she is inducing or exaggerating these symptoms. Now, the judge doesn't doubt when he makes his findings in 2019 that the mother did genuinely believe she had Addison's. She was told by a doctor at some stage that she had a hormone um, deficiency, adrenal deficiency, and she genuinely thought she had Addison's, but she didn't. So she was told to keep an eye out for symptoms that she was probably never going to experience because she never had the disease. Nonetheless, she presents at hospital a number of times throughout the years um, with these exact symptoms. So X is born in 2019, and that actually coincides with the period of real progress for this mother. And this is where the case becomes complicated because she really makes quite large strides forward in the period after the baby is born. And she engages well with the professionals, is very open, is very honest. She starts complying with the medication that she is meant to take. And for a period of one year between 2019 and 2020, there are no presentations at hospital. There are no concerns about Addison's symptoms. There are no unconsciousness, vomiting or nausea episodes. Mother is dealing very well with the birth of the baby, despite the baby being in foster care. She's attending contact. She is um, engaging with the local authority. Things are looking up, so to speak. And then comes 2020, where because of the pandemic and because of a number of other factors in the case, the mother's contact with the baby is suspended. If you remember back in March, no one was having any contact with any children in care. It was a very bad period for the whole system. There was no contact centres open. The local authority weren't doing visits. The local authority weren't observing contact in person. So there was a period of about three months where almost no one had contact with their children if they were in care. Obviously, extremely damaging, very difficult. For this mother, clearly represented quite a significant period of stress. And unfortunately, it led to a complete relapse to her previous behaviour and a resurgence of her attention-seeking behaviours. So the judge finds that during 2019, she was very much improved, but she regressed to depressingly familiar patterns in early 2020. The judge finds that threshold on that basis is, is entirely met because of the risk of induced illness 2x if he was returned to the mother. And uh, what the judge says is that the mother has experienced and continues to experience FD, which is factitious disorder, which may have started as long ago as 1999, a date which I take from a medical record of 13th of April 1999, which said she often manipulates the family into taking her to casualty for minor limb injuries. And certainly at least since 2007, when she first started presenting with Addisonian symptoms, she has sought attention by fabricating or exaggerating medical symptoms. The judge finds that he is satisfied that the mother did not deliberately falsify a condition of Addison's, but the symptoms of which she complained were a product of SSD, so psychosomatic disorder, headaches, nausea, vomiting and nausea, and FD, factitious disorder, which is the unconsciousness. So some of them are induced because she believes she had the disorder, and some of them are just faked. The judge goes on to say she's repeatedly told that she had Addison's and thereby adrenal insufficiency requiring emergency treatment if a crisis manifested. According to the medical records, it is clear that mother experienced these symptoms from 2007 to 2011, despite there being no diagnosis until 2011. From 2011 onwards, she has presented herself on multiple occasions with symptoms which, as is now known, cannot have been attributable to Addison's. Although there was a period of about a year in 2019 when these episodes ceased, they resumed from early 2020 onwards as the chronology outlines. The clear evidence is that absent Addison's, there is no organic explanation for such symptoms. In my judgment, based on all the evidence and submissions I've read and heard, and in particular the evidence of all three experts, the mother has to a degree genuinely experienced such symptoms, which were driven somatically by her underlying anxieties, and also to a degree exaggerated the symptoms. 
In particular, the court is satisfied that her multiple presentations of unconsciousness and unresponsiveness, which had no physical or medical cause, were attention-seeking exaggerations. On all such occasions, she was able to leave the hospital with no apparent ill effects. The judge finds that very sadly this represents a pattern originally found in the first set of proceedings from 2013, although not fully diagnosed in the way that it has been before me at this hearing. The mother undoubtedly experiences both SSD and FD and has done for many years. In my judgment, there is a continuing risk, which I would categorise as a high probability that the mother will continue to experience and suffer from SSD and FD and as a result will experience recurrent crises as a reaction to stress and anxiety. The mother believes that she will no longer experience such symptoms because she now knows she does not have Addison's. It's right to observe that since the non-diagnosis, there have been no further crises. However, the underlying anxiety disorders are so ingrained and so close to the surface that there is highly likely to be some form of maladaptive behaviour caused by stress and anxiety. So extremely sad summary to this case in a case where actually mother had demonstrated that she was doing quite well. The judge actually ends the judgment at paragraph 152, and I would actually urge people to read it if this is a, an area they're interested in, because it's a really um, interesting and well set out judgment. But the final paragraph says this, this will be the bitterest of pills for mother to swallow. Nobody can condone or excuse her past actions, but the sad reality of this case is that her behavior has its origins in mental health problems, which can be traced back to her own childhood and have gripped her ever since. I have considerable sympathy for her. Mental health illness is a curse. Over time, her behavior has become ever more ingrained. Stressful events led to crises, which in turn set the mother back and place her under ever greater stress. It is a vicious cycle. Unless and until she finally banishes her mental health demons or at least finds a way to cope with them, she will be unable to lead a happy and fulfilled life. There are glimmers of hope, a degree of progress for a period in 2019, a job, a life currently without an abusive partner. I sincerely hope that she finds it within herself to embark on the hard journey which she needs to undertake with expert mental health treatment. Thoughts? I don't know what the judgment says about what treatment she should engage in or what would have been helpful for her to do in order to keep this child in her care. We've spoken before about how local authorities are stretched resource-wise and we've also spoken about how parents fall off the radar once children are removed. So I'm just wondering whether there was this missed opportunity there between the removal of the older children and the birth of X where work could have been done with this mother, support could have been offered, for instance therapeutic involvement or something like that, mental health services, which could have dealt with this issue way before this child was ever born and could have prevented this family from disintegrating. And it relates to one of the talks I want to discuss later on in our next segment. But I just think it's a tragedy sometimes that there could be work that could be done with parents to prevent children from being removed, which isn't done, either because resources have not been put in place or attention hasn't been paid to parents once care proceedings end. I don't know if there is anything in the judgment about that. I've not read it. Yeah, it's a very long judgment. There's lots in there about lots of things. Um, and I've really just given you a whistle-stop tour of the main headlines, but there's a lot of detail in there about what was attempted and what wasn't. It appears that mother completely did not accept the findings from 2013 and in fact only really accepted that she had any particular issues, including PTSD, and she'd actually suffered a series of sexual assaults. Again, it's all extremely sad and awful. But there was continued trauma and continued maladaptive behaviour throughout that period between 2013 and 2019, which caused further presentations of exaggerated illness. And mother only really started to accept the findings from 2013 and accept that she'd caused her older children harm in the middle of the proceedings for her ex. So the timescales 
we're out completely. But you're entirely right to say that if the, this proper forensic exercise had been done, because the judge makes reference in the paragraph I read to it not having been properly diagnosed in 2013, the, the level to which this mother suffered from SSD and FD, if it had been diagnosed in 2013 and she'd been told, like she is in this judgment, which sets out very clearly what therapy she should do and sets a timescale of at least three years for completing that very in-depth therapy and also says it may not even work. If perhaps she'd been told that in 2013, things might have been different. It's incredibly sad to think about that. And the reality is, even if she had been accepting of those findings and even if, if she had been willing to engage in therapeutic work, I mean, we find a recurring problem in our cases when we do have clients who have mental health difficulties or need to engage in therapeutic work is it's just not available. That a lot of the time they make a referral via the NHS and they're on an indefinite waiting list, which then, of course, just as you said, is out of the timescales for the children, the phrase we hear all the time. It's really disappointing, actually, that the support isn't available when it is asked for. And I don't know what the solution to that is. A lot of the time when we're acting for parents, I know we ask local authorities to front the bill of mental health support and things like that. But when there aren't active care proceedings and the local authority doesn't have that level of involvement, how does the average person on the street access mental health services, particularly if they don't have the financial means to do so? I mean, the state of mental health services in this country is an absolute disgrace. And I've tweeted about it often. And I see the most stark effects of it in our care proceedings cases. Yeah, and I think to be fair, you know, this is a very extreme example of the maladaptive behaviour and the effect of mental health illness on this mother. I mean, the findings made in 2013 are very significant in terms of the harm that she did cause her children and the fact that this is a very significant and dangerous presentation to have. But that doesn't make it any less relevant that I don't doubt that there wouldn't have been much support available for her, even if she had decided to make that change, particularly with such an intense and difficult set of circumstances. So you question whether it's really just an example of certain people always being set up to fail by the system that we put them in, and really the extent to which the family courts should do more to secure that and to make sure that this pattern of multiple removals and, and other parents having children later in life and having them removed on the basis of previous findings keeps happening. Which brings me quite neatly to our next segment, which is book podcast talk recommendations. And what I just mentioned a moment ago, Maddie, I thought related quite nicely to my talk recommendation, which is called Can Social Workers Be Activists? And it's a talk that I found on YouTube by the organisation Students Decolonising Social Work. They followed us on Twitter, so I followed them back and I found this talk on YouTube and I thought it was really interesting. It's a very long talk. It's about an hour and 45 minutes, but it has a lot in it. And it's a collection of social workers and individuals from charities, NGOs who work with parents in care proceedings, particularly from minoritized communities, who are sharing their thoughts on whether or not social workers can be activists, and if so, how they go about that. How do we bring about radical social work? And I found the first speaker really interesting. His name's Colin Turbot, and he's a social worker and an activist. And he was talking about his experience of how social work has changed over the last couple of decades, and how social workers are now obsessed with narrow outcome focused assessments which are focused in particular on risk to the organization which is something we've talked about before on the podcast where I've talked about 
defensive social work rather than sensible social work. Post baby P, there's been this fixation on risk without necessarily a robust assessment of risk. So he talks about that. And then he talks about how social work can be oppressive. And he looks at various reasons for that. One being scarcity of resources. So keeping people away from what they need, which is obviously something we talk about all the time. Another factor he mentions is objective, in quotation marks, information. So assumptions that are put forward by social workers that are disguised as fact. And another factor being victim blaming. So one tension that we encounter quite often, for example, is victims of domestic abuse who are criticised for not safeguarding children, but they are themselves victims. And that creates this child protection versus social activism tension because you want to keep a child safe but equally you understand what the mother usually the mother is going through so he refers to uh, an academic called Malali 2010 who sets out the whole concept of social workers oppression and that's really really interesting and then they go on to talk about all sorts of things such as what make up the cornerstones of radical social work practice he in particular has a union background a trade union background so he talks quite a lot about the importance of building a trade union consciousness which is something we just don't talk about enough actually and is actually really really critical to building up a culture of positive meaningful social work where social workers feel confident enough to challenge the system in which they work he also talks about how we need proper supervision and workload management which i appreciate is easier said than done and about challenging oppression not just in CP conferences or in SIN meetings, but in the tea room when your colleagues say something inappropriate. Basic stuff, but something that's worth reminding ourselves about. And finally, he finishes by saying, and I think this is really powerful, we have the potential to see social work as a set of values which challenges the market, which challenges capital, which challenges competition, and which challenges poverty, which I think is so powerful. And I, I love a good Marxist analysis. And then they have a couple of speakers from other organisations, one organisation called Support Not Separation, which works with mothers and children who have been separated, and another organisation called Project 17, which looks at the implementation of Section 17 of the Children Act, which makes provision for support to be provided to families in need, and how that provision is not used enough, how that section is simply not implemented properly, and support services aren't offered. And one of the speakers, Nina Lopez from Support Not Separation, refers to how we get intervention, but we don't get support, which again feeds back into the theme of resources that we can react because we can afford to react, but we don't necessarily preempt what has happened and try and prevent it from happening in the first place. So lots of really interesting themes that were picked up there that we don't apply the same standard to families that we do to children in care. We've talked about that before, about how we don't really have an honest conversation about the experiences of children in care and whether or not that really is the best worst option than removing them from their parents. So lots and lots and lots in it. I can't possibly summarise it all in a couple of minutes. Do check it out. And I'd finish with this quote again from Colin Turbett, who I'm obsessed with now, who says, I have taken children away and I would absolutely justify that. But that can also be traced back often to damage done by the system at a much earlier stage 
which was avoidable and may not have led to family disintegration. So I thought that was apt, particularly given what we've discussed so far in this episode. And the other article I wanted to recommend, which you might have seen, Maddie, because everyone has been sharing it on legal Twitter, is an article by Celia Kitzinger called An Onlooker at Someone Else's Social Event, A Mother's Experience of the Court. Celia Kitzinger is great. She does so much for open justice. She does so much for giving lay parties a voice in proceedings and helping lawyers to understand what their clients are really going through. And there's a snippet there, which I'm going to read out because I think it gives you a flavour of what the article is about. Nearing 1pm, he said, and this is the barrister, that he was desperate for a sandwich as he'd been up since 6am and asked if he could get me anything. I said, no, thank you. And he dashed off. I have no idea where he had to go for that. Not seeing the sandwich being eaten, I don't know if he ever got one, but I became aware that he might be in the room next door with the other legal team. It was well after 1pm when he came back to talk to me. Then another call at the door, and this time he seemed to be called urgently and rushed off. He was gone for quite a while, and when he came back, he was telling me the judge wanted to make plans about me visiting Lillian, and arrangements were being made between everybody, and there would be another hearing. I asked when we would be going into court, and he told me that it had happened and was all over. I was shocked. And I think it's such a great article just to shine a light on how disconnected advocates are sometimes from the experiences of their clients. This is something we do day in, day out. We are used to having these discussions with other advocates. We are used to driving down to the key points and making sure that we focus on the issues rather than getting distracted by other things that the client might want to talk about which perhaps aren't so relevant but in that process we lose sight of the fact that for our clients this isn't an everyday occurrence they aren't coming to court all the time they don't know what the process is and sometimes they need to be handheld they need someone to explain to them the basics and I think we assume a lot of understanding that they don't necessarily have because we do it all the time so I think articles like Celia's are a good reminder that we have so much more to do when it comes to the client care side of things. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'm obsessed with decolonizing social work. I'm here for any organisation that looks to put socialist values into practice in public authorities. I think it's fantastic. And I think it's a real tension that we essentially have a system that is willing to pay, as you say, when things go wrong, but is not willing to pay more to fix them to prevent things going wrong in the future. That's just a fundamental political policy that should work and should be implemented. And secondly, in terms of, you know, victim perpetrator, that's something that you're taught at the beginning of becoming a lawyer. And and I assume as a social worker that people are often perpetrators later in life who were victims in early life. And that is so profound when you see it in the care system. And it can't be fixed by, like you say, late stage reactive social work. It has to be fixed by early stage proactive social work. And it's so heartening to me that there's whole organisations who are dedicating themselves to that. I think that's so important. We talk, as I say, one of the themes of this podcast is that the local authority don't do what they're supposed to do. And a lot of the time, that's not a criticism of individual social workers. They're working in what is essentially an impossible system. And it's so heartening to me that there are individuals out there who have those values and are looking to try and implement those policies. I think that's just fantastic. In relation to Celia Kitzinger, I did read the article. I thought it was really good. I I knew exactly what paragraph you were going to quote when you said you were going to quote it because it stuck with me as well. And I think as much as you want to think I'd never do that, you do tend to assume a level of knowledge, even with people that you speak to who aren't necessarily lawyers, lay clients, social workers, guardians sometimes. So it's important to remember that, you know, courtrooms are our homes. They're everyone else's visits. So it's very helpful that people like Celia are kind of demystifying that process for people and hopefully 
making lawyers and professionals think twice about how they engage with clients. And I, I also am aware that a lot of family judges get training about how to deal with litigants in person, how to explain things to clients in the courtroom. And often we'll sit in hearings where they do that and think, oh, I know this. And actually, it might be quite helpful for us to employ some of those techniques to explain to our own clients, because they don't necessarily know anything more than a litigant in person might at the beginning of the hearing. And so we can take 10 minutes to explain to them the kind of things that judges say to litigants in person, I think is really helpful. What have you got for me, Maddie? My recommendation this week is about menopause at the bar. So I was reading an article in Council Magazine from October 2020 last year, I'm a bit behind on my reading, about a project set up by Louise Caulfield, which is looking to consider the impact of menopause in the workplace, specifically the bar. And it's incredibly interesting and I think incredibly relevant as we look to the future of more equality and diversity at the bar, because we're very good at looking at it from the bottom end. We're not so good at looking at it from the top end. And we know that there is a huge disparity in gender and racial gap at the judiciary, at the bench. And one of the reasons for that might be because we have insufficient menopausal training, which causes a gender gap. And what Louise is trying to do is essentially offer training to chambers and to clerks and to the judiciary about the impact of menopause. And it's interesting, the article, I'll put the link in the show notes, but it tells how obviously menopause is different for all women or people who um, go through it. The average age to go through the menopause is 51, meaning that many people will be experiencing menopausal and perimenopausal symptoms in their mid to late 40s, which if you're at the bar is a very key time. It's probably around the time of a silk application or a senior judicial appointment. And it can also mean an actual tangible physical dip in your performance in terms of lack of sleep, loss of concentration, mood changes and physical symptoms, including tiredness and headaches. And the drop of gender at the bar towards the senior end, as I said, the judiciary and silks is absolutely marked um, by gender disparity. And so something like this, which I think is a really concrete way of addressing that disparity about something that's still quite taboo. I mean, I don't hear people talking about menopause that much, and it really should be talked about in the same way as pregnancy, having a family, maternity leave, anything like that, because it's exactly the same impact physically, emotionally. And I'm really looking forward to reading more about the project. I know there was a talk about it from the Chancery Bar Association last night, Hopefully um, the Family Law Bar Association can do something similar to try and educate, obviously, other barristers, but also chambers, clerks and anyone who works with them to be aware of the issues that menopause brings and hopefully try and redress some of the gap at the senior level of the bar. So I was really heartened to see that. And thank you, Louise Caulfield, for that. Yes, Cyrus, from the FLBA or Hannah Markham, if you can hear us, then perhaps we could have something similar from the FLBA. I was aware of this article. I haven't read it yet. I'm woefully uninformed about menopause and the impact of menopause on women it's not something we're ever taught in school it's not something we're ever prepared for Um, so the ignorance of youth I suppose but I did see that the Chancery Bar was running that event I saw Sarah Langford who wrote in your defense tweet about it and she was saying that if you need any further proof that the bar's attitude towards women is changing it's this that email sharing the council article and that event at the Chancery Bar so hopefully we are making strides forward and I completely agree with you it is taboo and it's something that we need to demystify and destigmatize talking about tweet of the week yes my tweet of the week is by Jasveer Singh who is a barrister at underscore Jasveer Singh and he tweeted on the 2nd of June 
Very thankful for the judge today in making the other side apologize for racist comments about my turban at court today. None of us picked it up initially. The interpreter failed to translate it due to the other side's long rant. And he goes on to add, it was only when my client told me what was said that I informed the court about it. The judge made it very clear that such comments are taken seriously and the other side was effusive in their apology. There is no excuse for racism in the courts whatsoever and no reason why anyone should be subjected to such during the course of a court hearing. I hope that other legal professionals feel confident enough to report any racist comments to the court as soon as they happen. And this actually really opened my eyes to something that I don't think we really do or are used to doing in court, which is we're used to hearing offensive language. We're used to hearing witnesses, certain people be aggressive and abusive during court. And I have heard various witnesses make homophobic and racist remarks in their evidence before it has happened. And it's not often, the judges will obviously say, please don't say that or don't act like that in my courtroom, et cetera. But they will very rarely specifically pinpoint why that language is wrong. And I think that's, again, something that we need for a cultural shift at the bar. We need it to make the clients, first and foremost, feel safe, the parties who are using the system, but also the barristers and the professionals who work there. It is not usual in any other job to go to court and be subjected to, for example, homophobic or racist abuse. It's just not normal. And I know it's happened to barristers before. So I think there's a, a really good way of building not only the culture of if it happens to you to speak out to the judge, but another barrister can always speak to the judge and say, that's unacceptable. Please, could you ask them to apologise on behalf of the person who's had to experience it? It's not something that has occurred to me before, which I'm probably very naive and, and I apologise for. But... I really thought it was an excellent idea from Jasvir and I hope that we can all start implementing that to protect each other and to protect clients from any rogue things that people say in their evidence that they think that they're immune from criticism on. They're not. They should be called out. We should not be tolerating it in any sphere of work. Yeah, I think I'm very fortunate in that I've not specifically been subjected to racist abuse have been subjected to abuse, I'm sure. There are lots of <laughs> lay parties who have been generally quite unpleasant to me. And the difficulty is that if it were another legal professional who had said anything to me, I would have somewhere to report them. I would go to the SRA, I'd go to the BSB. But when it's a party to the proceedings, there's no one you can escalate that to. There's no way that you can deal with that or protect yourself or safeguard yourself, which is why it's so important for the court and for judges to intervene because there's no other option. So I, I'm so pleased that the judge in Jasvis case did that. And I hope that we see a lot more of that moving forward, not just specifically, as you say, in respect of racist abuse, but homophobic abuse, sexist abuse and abuse in general, because we shouldn't have to put up with that in our line of work. And I actually think it's something that many of us normalise as something that just comes with the territory. Yeah, I agree. And comments also made about professionals, it's quite common to hear abusive language used about social workers and guardians and people who are involved in the children. So again, we need to be aware of our position in the courtroom if that happens to alert the judge to it and hopefully get some redress, at least in the moment, if not long term. What is your tweet of the week? My tweet of the week is a fun one which is from Elvis Bunuello at Mr. Underscore Considerate. <laughs> I felt personally victimised by this tweet. I don't want to alarm anyone, but I've just been asked in a job interview if I used lockdown to pursue any passion projects or personal development. Are we those people, Maddie, and I hate us? Well, I think this is a good opportunity to point everyone in the direction of our Council Magazine article, because we do address this exact issue. We're fully aware of how embarrassing it is to start a podcast over lockdown, and that's hence the name, just a little joke. But yeah, I think it's. I think it was inevitable that we had too much time on our hands and wanted to hear the sounds of our own voice more because we were missing court. So I don't apologise for it. 
And also now that we have less time on our hands, we are really, really regretting ever starting this podcast, but now we've committed and it will never end. So there we are. We're being punished for it now. It's so much work, you guys. <laughs> that is so much work. No one appreciates this. We didn't appreciate this and we're not tech savvy either. So some of the work has been taken off our hands by our wonderful editor, Luke, who does all the chopping and changing of things that we don't want people to hear. But my goodness, how much research goes into this, how much thought for probably a handful of listeners who actually are only half listening to us. Yeah. And if you've made it this far as ever, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all of you. And yeah, I would reiterate, Marv, because thanks to Luke, who's just fantastic and takes so much of the work off of our plate. So that's episode seven. Thank you so much, everyone. See you next time.